Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast which covers economics, finance, politics, and the arts. I give the speaker just six minutes to make their opening argument. Today's topic is models and bottles. Our first speaker on this program will be Nina Scalera, who is a fellow podcaster with her own show, She Works Hard for the Money, about her life as a 20-something working as a bartender at the trendy Midtown restaurant Avra. Nina will give us a glimpse into the New York dating scene from her vantage point behind the bar. I'm also reading the What Happens Next archives, and I've selected excerpts from a conversation with Ashley Mears, who's a sociologist at Boston University and the author of the book, Very Important People, Status and Beauty in the Global Party Circuit. I wanted to contrast the bar scene at a cool bar with bottle service at a hip club. Buckle up. I make this podcast to learn, and I offer this program free of charge to anyone that's interested. Please tell your friends about it and have them sign up to receive our weekly emails about upcoming shows. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe so you can continue to enjoy this content. Okay, let's start with Nina's opening six-minute remarks. My name is Nina Sclera. I am a career bartender currently working at a well-known Greek restaurant on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. I've been working as a bartender in the city for almost five years now, but my journey into the food and beverage industry started long before that. I was born and raised right outside of Atlantic City, New Jersey by two hardworking casino workers, my mother a cocktail waitress and my father a dealer at the time. I spent most of my childhood in casinos and quickly realized the fast-paced, high-energy environment was for me. I saw how my mother's charm and vivacious personality brought in the big tips and how my father's kind-hearted character brought customers back time and time again. As a teenager and young adult, I worked in all different hospitality settings, nightclubs, mom and pop restaurants, casinos, and we can't forget about Hooters, although my father likes to forget that one. It didn't matter where I worked or who I served, people just loved to be around my positive and energetic personality. It became almost like a performance for me. Each table I waited on, I could be a different character, an elevated version of myself. I fell in love with entertaining my guests, and the 20% tip that followed was the added bonus. The desk job wasn't for me, and to take my career to the the next level, I had to dominate the bar. Using my industry connections and a few extra pumps of perfume, I convinced some poor schmuck to hire me as a bartender. Being behind a bar and serving multiple people at once gave me a whole new perspective on what it meant to multitask. It was like learning a dance routine with complicated steps, but the more I practiced, the better I got. I decided to embrace the chaotic dance of bartending, and I've been dancing ever since. My approach to bartending is very similar to how I live my life. Don't take stuff too personally. Have fun, laugh, and enjoy the ride. Connecting with people and sharing who I am doesn't feel like work at all. I have no problem admitting I embrace my femininity behind the bar. It's my secret weapon, and it's what works for me. If batting my eyelashes and referring to a group of men as boys gets me some extra cash, well, honey, I'll do it with a smile on, and I'll walk all the way to the bank. At the end of the day, I'm in the business of fun in one of the greatest cities in the world. I'm so lucky to find joy in how I make a living. I am proud to say that I'm a bartender, which is why I started my podcast, She Works Hard for the Money. I host a fun, energetic show about what it's like to be a female behind the bar. A lot of millennials fall into the hospitality industry not knowing what they're doing, but I'm there to be their confidence and be their friend to hang out with. 
Sometimes you feel a little insecure about admitting you're a bartender, but my space for podcasting is really just to help everyone understand that it's a way to make a living. I started my podcast during COVID, and I thought it would be a great space to talk about what we miss so much. And it's become a passion project of mine and really helped a big community of mine to talk about what we go through and how we like to deal with going into our jobs. I loved your comment that as a bartender, you were in the theater and performing arts business. Growing up, I wasn't the best student. So I actually turned to the arts. I grew up dancing, doing theater, and it was really a space for me to be my wacky, outgoing self. So as I was getting older and needed a job, I decided to embrace those two worlds and realize that I could put on a show for people. It takes a certain kind of person to evaluate who they're waiting on and turn on a different personality or, or charm for someone. And I've combined those worlds of theater and dance and acting and what you learn by improv and reading people because you're really just looking at it as a skit or a show. And I'm very lucky that I have that background because it's given me the upper hand. Why were you embarrassed admitting that you were a bartender? Like I mentioned, I have two parents who worked in hospitality. My mother was a cocktail server for 25 years in the casino. My father started off as a dealer, became a pit boss. They always wanted my brother and I to get an education, to go to school, so we wouldn't have to end up like them. That's what they always said. We wouldn't have to work in this business and work so hard. And what did I do? Completely rebelled against everything that they said and ended up as a bartender. It was embarrassing to admit because being a bartender, it's not a steady job. You don't have a steady income. Um, there's not really any growth when your friends are working, I don't know, in sales jobs or desk jobs where they can grow to be a manager one day. As a bartender, you really just see a flat line and you're going to work in the evenings and you're not living a normal life, waking up, going to a nine to five. I used to think, wow, my job doesn't have any meaning. Like I'm not a nurse. I'm not curing cancer. But you just have to be confident in what you do. And I found that I've become very settled in what I do because I really love my job. I have friends that hate their jobs and they have a very nice title and they have a secure, cushy office, but they really are miserable. Through my podcast, I help to give people confidence that being a bartender, being a server is not something to look down upon. It's a very hard job that many people can't do and you should be very proud of the work that you put into it. Victoria Asaf, who is the co-founder of the Serafina restaurant chain, spoke on this podcast, What Happens Next, in March of 2020. And he told us that because of the New York City restaurant closure policies for COVID, he had to let go 1,000 workers. He knew that he would be unable to put that team back together because the staff would disperse all over the world. Victoria was able to recreate Serafina, but it's different. COVID obviously hit the hospitality industry like a ton of bricks. It was crazy to go into work one day, normal shift, and like everyone else in the world, everything was stopped. I, at the time, was bartending at a spot in Midtown, Manhattan. We got laid off. It was like, what do we do now? This is all we know. And you're telling us that people aren't going to be allowed to go out to eat and drink. It was very, very scary. And quite honestly, we all lost track of each other. And it just made you realize, especially especially in a city like New York, that 
hospitality is what we need. It's the culture. It's the glue that ties the city together. People work so hard. They want to relax. They want to go out. They want to dine. And they don't have that anymore. It was really quite honestly depressing. (laughs) And we all felt it. We all just wanted to go out and get a burger and hang with our friends. I was unemployed for a very long time until things started reopening people found other jobs. I myself was offered a job to sell liquor for a big supplier and they took bartenders, servers who had that natural ability to sell, but to do it in a more refined way outside of the restaurant. It's kind of a fresh start. Which night is busiest working at your bar at Avra on 60th and Madison? Manhattan, it's truly the city that never sleeps. Weeknights are really where it's at. And I like to call the weekend amateur hour. That's when you get your tourists who come out, who saved up a little extra money, who think that they're going to a nice fancy restaurant. They can be big shots. But during the week where people are spending $800, that's where the night is at. I'd say Thursday night is the most popular night. It's really that after work dinner crowd, ready to throw mocktails down, cocktails down, whatever it is on their company card and just really let loose. When I was single 25 years ago, my friends would sometimes go to a bar to try to pick up girls. But I hear that's all changed with dating apps. What do you see going on at the bar? Yes, it's definitely change because of the dating apps. However, nothing beats an organic connection at the bar. I see everything as a bartender. So many people have their heads in their phones and you're like, oh, this is ridiculous. If you just look up, there's a handsome gentleman to your right or a good looking woman to your left. Just be in the moment. My bar cultivates that vibe of wanting to meet people. It's very sexy, beautiful, and people go there because they know that Eligible people are going to be around, drinking, and letting loose. The dating apps definitely changed the game, but people are still out there wanting to meet in person. You can't get rid of that natural connection. Does your bar cater to the divorce crowd? I like to consider this bar a divorce welcoming bar or whatever separation, whatever mojo you're on, come on in. Divorce night happens pretty much every night at this bar, but during the week is really popular. You don't want to underestimate during the week because the weekend you get a lot more younger. It's a, like a late night crowd, but during the week... The amount of, hmm, I'm sorry to say this, but desperate women that stroll into that bar is comical. They go out with the intention of just having a few drinks, but then it turns into something else. A lot of women have no problem marching right up to a man and saying, hey, can you buy me a drink? I can't afford a glass of wine right now. Like no game, no introducing themselves, just like, can you buy me dinner? So nothing really shocks me anymore. And I think... They got no time to waste. We've wasted two years not going out to restaurants. They're ready to go. (laughs) What about the role of working women in these high-class bars? I've heard that the Four Seasons Hotel bar was that scene, but that place closed in COVID. You know, I really love to embrace these women. Everyone's got to make their dollar, and who am I to put them down? And it's really funny because you can always tell When a woman walks through the door, what her agenda is. When she sits down at the bar, she's looking over her shoulder to her right, her left. She's a little timid to put up her credit card to hold because she's waiting for someone to buy her a drink. It's very clear. And as a woman who loves to go out and dine and sit at a bar herself, 
I get a little insecure. I'm like, what do people think about me? But you just have to embrace who you are and what you're doing. And they certainly embrace who they are. Every time someone orders a drink, you have to ask them, hey, can I hold a card for a tab just because you don't want them to walk out on a check. But when these women come in and you ask them for a card, they get so taken aback. I try to like let them know, listen, I don't need to charge the card. Someone else can pay for your drink. I just need to hold it. Don't worry. You'll find a suitor who's going to take care of you. Besides that, it's quite entertaining, especially when they sink their teeth into some poor victim. (laughs) My wife hosted a party the other day during the Miami Art Basel show at our house. We hired a bartender and some servers, and Julie asked the staff to move their cars away from the house, but one of the bartenders refused to do so. And then he complained before the party even started that this event was not being professionally run. I fired him immediately because I assumed that he would spread negative energy like a cancer and he needed to be removed. He would interact with all of our guests. Better to fire him now and work around it. Well, the right thing you could have done was hire me because I certainly would have never spoken to your wife that way. (laughs) A bad attitude is cancer. I cannot stand people with a bad attitude. In bartending, in hospitality, in food and bev, the answer is always yes. If someone doesn't like their drink and they say, can you make it less sweet? Yes, I can. My food doesn't taste good. Can I get something new? Yes, you can. The customer is always right. And that's the attitude that you need to have. Whether you think they're wrong, you think that it's belittling that you have to say yes to this person, it does not matter. At the end of the day, you are doing a job and you're doing a job for them. There's going to be people that have bad energy, people that aren't team players. It's everywhere. But when it's behind the bar, when it's customer facing, it's really hard to hide. When a restaurant hires someone like that, I think it's very important to nip it in the bud right away because negative energy is very contagious and can spread throughout staff all the way to the back of the house, into the kitchen. And once it starts, like it's a fire, it cannot be stopped. So I certainly think that you did the right thing because at the end of the day, that person is supposed to be the face of the party, is supposed to be the one saying yes to everything. And if that was the interaction right from the jump, like it was only going to go downhill. So you definitely did yourself a favor. (laughs) A few years ago, I heard Danny Meyer speak. He is the restaurateur who started Shake Shack and Gramercy Tavern. He said that over 10% of the meals at his top Gramercy Tavern restaurant were not prepared properly, and that he desperately wants those meals to be right and for the customer to send them back because an unhappy customer won't come back and will tell his friends. The biggest cost in the business is customer acquisition. What do you think about sending back food? I 100% agree with Danny. Once you drop someone's food, you're supposed to do that second touch to make sure that they are enjoying what they ordered. It's very important that customers let you know truly how they're feeling because we can fix it. If you wanted your steak to be medium and it's well done, I want you to enjoy that steak. You're paying $60 for a steak at my restaurant. I want you to enjoy every bite of it because it's going to affect the next time that you come back. A lot of the times we find that people will say something at the 
end of their meal, when they're finished, when they have one bite left on the plate. And they're like, well, you know, I didn't really enjoy this. You should have let me know then I would have replaced it. I would have gotten you something that you truly enjoyed. And they get a little nervous to tell you because they don't want to complain. People shouldn't be afraid to send back their food and get it fixed. What they should be afraid about is finishing it and then asking to have it free on their check because most managers will say no. It's in your belly. You ate it. You're paying for it. Some people don't want to make a scene or do anything to rock the boat. What is the right way to interact with the wait staff? We all grew up with that weird uncle who every time we went out to dinner, we were like, oh God, here's Uncle Rob. He's going to send back his burger. It's so embarrassing. We all have this underlying feeling like, oh, I never want to be that person to send back my food, especially with I'm with a big group of people or maybe I'm on a first date. You should feel comfortable in paying for what you want. And there's always a way to go about it. It's like everything in life. It's not what you say, it's how you say it. Next topic, unruly customers. You're an attractive young woman and guys must be hitting on you all the time. What happens when you don't want to reciprocate? Also, your customers get drunk and you have to cut them off. Men will get mad. Now what? This is my expertise. I have a very thick skin and I am very easygoing. So really anything anyone says to me doesn't really bother me unless they're like coming for my family. You know, I'm an Italian-American, very loyal. That's really the only thing that can bug me. And plus, I've been in all different kinds of settings. I've worked in a nightclub before. I worked in the casino. I worked in fine dining, dive bars. I've seen every type of character there is. I've dealt with so many personalities that I really can handle anything. I am a young woman Of course, I get hit on all the time. I really embrace it. I take it as a compliment where other people find it to be obnoxious and annoying, but I find it to be quite charming. And if I can use it to my advantage to make a better tip, I'm certainly going to do that. I have no problem just being my spunky self. And I know a lot of people don't have that approach to bartending. I know feminists around the world are freaking out, but I love to use the fact that I'm a young woman. I'm not going to be this young forever. I can really relate to a lot of people, a lot of women as well. It's refreshing and it's fun to tap into a different space because when I leave and I'm walking down the street, I'm not this elevated version of myself. When I'm behind the bar, I'm a bit more cheeky because it's just a fun environment where I know I can get people going and I can get this energy out of them that they don't have at the office. And they're at the bar, they're ready to relax, and they're just hanging with their girl, Neen Scale, who's ready to make them a drink and make them laugh along the way. We did an episode recently of What Happens Next called Food Porn about the life of the Chicago restaurateur, Charlie Trotter, who is famous for demanding excellence from his staff. Would you want to work in that kind of intense environment? I admire him. I've always approached work in the way of if I'm not trying my best at every single shift that I show up to, I might as well leave. If I have the opportunity to work in this amazing country, I better give it my all. A lot of people let things slip through the cracks and they let one thing go. And next thing you know, everyone's lazy and everyone has no respect. And it's really a downfall to a lot of people's restaurants. I'm reading Anthony Bourdain's book, Kitchen Confidential, and he talks about 
about how the downfall of people opening up restaurants because they get lazy and they give up. So I admire him for always wanting perfection because you're not always going to get it, but it's going to trickle down and give the people that are working underneath of you that energy to keep pushing, keep going. But if that person doesn't show up with pride in their job, they're never going to grow into be anything else. It harps back to what I was saying before about how when I was younger, I used to be embarrassed to say that I was a bartender. Once you start having pride in what you do and you look to achieve excellence, you will always be good at something. You will always be better than the person to your right. It sounds like a pretty intense environment that he used to run, but I would love to work there. I love someone who pushes me to be better, to be a bit more professional. And I think that's why he was so successful. Your restaurant, Avra, is gigantic and it's on two floors. The restaurant, Rouge Tomat, worked in that same space and failed there. But your restaurant is just killing it. I mean, it's packed for lunch, dinner, late night. What is Avra doing so right? One of the managers was talking about how we should all be so thankful and lucky to be working at this restaurant. People are lying to get through the door. They're lying and say they have a reservation or they know the owner. And that is where I work. You get good quality people in the door, plus the food and the consistency of the staff brings people back. A lot to do with it nowadays too is who is coming to dine at your restaurant, who is posting their food and who is posting their iconic seat at the bar. It's a very classy looking joint. The decor and the environment, you feel like someone in there. Even if you walk in in workout clothes, you're surrounded by beautiful people, beautiful dishes, beautiful looking cocktails. You have no other choice but to feel like you're something special. So it's going to bring you back and it's going to make you tell people about your positive experience. I eat out for lunch at the other restaurants within a block or two of you. Amaranth, Serafina, Bilbo K, and Quality Meats. But each restaurant seemingly has a different clientele. How would you differentiate who goes to Avra? We definitely have a couple different clientele during the week. It's a lot of business casual. You have the men like yourself coming in during your long lunch breaks. I used to bartend in Midtown and I used to say, wow, one day when I grow up, I want to just be able to take a three-hour lunch in the middle of a Tuesday. So during lunch, you have that clientele, little light suits, some kitten heels, and they're just enjoying it, maybe having a glass of wine on the company card. Then Then around the early evening, we have the early bird special. There are diners that come in from the Upper East Side. They put on their best fur jacket. They come in right at 5 o'clock. They're my grandmother's age, and they're ready to get in, get out, have a nice meal, and go home to bed by 8 p.m. Around 8 p.m., you get more of the fun crowd. I'd say younger crowd coming in from a happy hour. And in the evening, that's when we have our feisty friends come out that are looking to maybe make a few matches. But it's also people that like to dine out late. I had friends come visit me in the city recently and we made a dinner reservation for 11 o'clock. As part of my due diligence for this program, I went over to Avra on a Thursday night at 9 p.m. to check out the bar scene. I mean, the place was totally packed. I had real trouble getting anywhere close to the bar. But when we finally saw each other, I yelled out, hey, Nina, congratulations, you're on the podcast. And then an entire section of the bar exploded. Nina's on the show. Nina's on the show. Buy that man a drink. I didn't even realize anyone was listening. How did you get such an enormous fan club? 
You would think that I had like some magical glow about me that I could just spit an answer out and I could tell you, but I really, it's quite, I'm like, you got me like all taken aback. I really don't know what to say. I really am never a loss for words. When the bar is busy like that and it's like six people deep, that is truly when I come alive. That is when I'm my best self, when you're super busy and you're like just totally in the weeds. You have tickets flying around, you have drinks to make, you have food coming out that needs to be served. I thrive in the weeds. That's when my best work comes out, so to speak. This is going to sound a bit silly to say, but people forget how important eye contact is. So when someone comes right up to me, I might be busy doing a million things. Bartenders are notorious for keeping their heads down because they're working. But when someone comes right up to you, I can easily just ignore someone by keeping my head down, acting like I don't see them. I'm making a drink. I'm putting something in the computer. I find it to be very important to lock eyes with someone and say, hey, just give me a minute. I'll be right with you. So they know that I'm connected. I see them. And even though I'm busy, I will get to them in a second. People will say, oh, that girl's got me. I have a bunch of regulars that I've taken with me from my previous job. When I got hired at Avra, I sent out a mass text. Hey, I'm going to be working here. This is my schedule. Come in and see me. And I'm very lucky that I kept in touch with those people, especially during the pandemic. And I actually even worked a couple private gigs. It's just my charisma that keeps people engaged with who I am, who will want to sit and eat dinner with me instead of go sit at a table, even though where the dining room is really where it's happening. It's where everyone can be seen. But being at the bar with me is a really good time. So (laughs) I'd like to say it's my slick tongue that keeps people up there, but I work really, really hard to make money. I love to go out. I love to go dine. I love to go sit at a bar. And I know what it takes to make that money when I tip a bartender. So I want to make sure that I'm doing that for someone else. Tipping is the next topic. We had University of Chicago professor John List on the podcast, and he's the former chief economist at both Uber and Lyft. And he implemented a tipping strategy for Uber. The former CEO of Uber did not want to mandate tipping, so it was not viewed as a tax. He wanted to be optional, where maybe 10% of its customers would do it. And he tried to separate the Uber ride from the tip decision. In the restaurants, nearly everyone tips because the interaction is so personal and there is societal pressure to pay. What strategies do you use to maximize tipping? Tipping is second nature to people that live in America, right? You go to dinner, you go out to lunch, you know to tip. Now it's getting a bit aggressive. If I go get a cup of coffee, a little iPad tells me that I should tip the barista. If I go down to my local market and I'm buying groceries, they're asking me if I want to tip them. It's like, I bagged my own groceries. Why do I got to tip you? But when it comes to taxi drivers, Uber drivers, bartenders, servers, it really shouldn't be a question, right? But it surprisingly is. I worked a shift last night. I got stiffed three times. But unfortunately, it happens. Not often where I work. Other venues where I worked, of course, it happened all the time, especially when I worked in the casino. But tipping is something that you earn, especially if you want to get a bit over a 20% tip, you got to earn it. If you put a little extra flair, you open up on who you are, you're interested in who the person is, why they're dining here. Are they on a client dinner? How can I impress the person that they're trying to impress so I can make their meeting go a little bit better? These are things you pick up on when you're in the industry for a while. My restaurant has a lot of client dinners, client business meetings. I know that my presence can be 
only beneficial to the person that's taking the person out. They're the one paying on the company card. Most time company cards, you can only tip 20%. You can't tip over. But to get that extra tip out of their pocket is really what I work for. And that's just something that you learn throughout the years. I hosted a party the other night and the guests kept asking for tequila. And then we ran out. Why has tequila become such a popular spirit? Tequila is hot right now. Everyone obviously always drank tequila, but during COVID, people really enjoyed tequila. It's really probably the most popular spirit. Definitely vodka would be next, and then going on with the bourbon and gin, of course. Poor gin is always at the bottom. Celebrity tequila is really hot. I mean, The Rock has Terramana. P. Diddy has De Leon. Michael Jordan has Centuro. 1942, you couldn't get it during COVID. I talk about on my podcast that you should drink what you enjoy. I know that some men are a little insecure if they like to drink a Cosmo because it's pink and it's in a martini glass. Or some people don't want to be adventurous because they never tried gin before. But if you like to drink an Amstel Light, drink an Amstel Light. If you like to drink a Cosmo, put it in a rocks glass and ask them to use a little less cranberry if you're a little insecure of that it's pink. Tequila is a great spirit. It's super versatile. You can sip it neat, which I encourage a lot of people to do if you're drinking a good tequila because it can be enjoyed that way with just like a little lime or a little orange and you can really enjoy that flavor. You're going to get a little burn, but you'll enjoy the burn after a while. We're going to hear in a minute from Ashley Mears about the bottle service world. What are your impressions of the club's use of models and bottles? Yeah, the bottle service world is something that will always amaze me. You're paying for the table and not for the bottle. You're paying for a space to stand in the club, the bar, the lounge, wherever you are at. It's really just to secure a spot so you don't have to go back and forth to the bar and have a little area that you can say, hey, look at me. I spent over two grand to just be having my feet planted right here. Plus, I get a pretty little bottle server that is all mine who can make me drinks all night. But if you think about it, you're really getting basic, boring drinks. You're buying one bottle. Let's just say it's Tito's. A bottle of Tito's in the store costs $34 and you're usually paying $500 for a silly bottle of Tito's. And you're getting only three mixers with it, club soda, cranberry, and pineapple. So you're drinking vodka, pineapple for almost $500 plus the 18% tip that's guaranteed for the bottle server. Plus you're always going to throw her more because she's in heels and she's working hard because you feel bad for her. And you're really just just paying all that money to stand there. It's honestly the most brilliant scam that we've ever pulled off. <laughs> Put a pretty girl and pour out some crappy drinks with a couple of ice cubes and you're good to go. I love the TV show Cheers that highlights the critical role of the regular at the bar. Is that true for your restaurant as well? When I first started working at Avra, I didn't think that regulars would exist there. It's such a high-end restaurant. Who wants to get fancy every single night just to pay for an overpriced glass of wine? But when I tell you I see the same faces every night, it's like they never even left the bar stool. That suit looks the same. Did you even shower? It's like anything that you do in life. Once you get comfortable somewhere, you love to go back. The food is consistent. The service is good. The people are good looking. Why would you not? want to come back. So it really makes complete sense why people choose to come here. Nina, why do you do your podcast and why has it become your passion project? 
She works hard for the money is my baby. I am a huge disco fan. Donna Summer is my queen. She works hard for the money has always been like a favorite song of mine. So during COVID, when I was out of a job, I was living back with my parents. I was 27 years old and I was just having like a meltdown. Like, what am I doing with my life? Like, how did I end up here? Maybe my parents were right. Maybe I should have gotten an education and gotten a real job. I've obviously have the gift of gab. I love to talk. I love podcasts. And I feel like I've always had a different outlook on the food and beverage industry. I found it to be so inspiring in so many ways because it's brought me out of my shell and it's brought me to meet so many wonderful people. So I decided to blend the two worlds together and say, hey, why don't I start a podcast? Now is the time. I'm unemployed and we really are craving this energy of being out at restaurants. So maybe I can build a community of people to talk about what it's like being a bartender. I'd like to consider myself the voice of young millennials out there who work in this industry, who just want to come home, have a shift drink with me and hang out and talk about the funny interactions that we deal with at work. I at times felt a little lost being a bartender. How am I going to grow in this role? How am I going to date someone who goes to work during the day and I go to work during the evening? And when I started my podcast, it really gave me meaning and saying like, hey, maybe this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Nina, I end each episode on a note of optimism. What are you optimistic about? I'm optimistic about bartending. The amount of connections, just even meeting you and introducing myself, learning about you and your show and listening to your episodes. I mean, you are just amazing. And the people that you have on are people I never thought I'd ever listen to, interact with in my life. So just having the opportunity to meet people and I'm super optimistic about meeting someone who's going to help me with my career, help me with my podcast, or just be a good friend. I've made so many friends in this industry. I've made coworkers who have been great friends as well. So it's really just if you put yourself out there and you are true to yourself, you're going to find someone that you connect with, even if they are so different. Me and you couldn't be more different. And look at us. We're having a fabulous conversation on a Wednesday morning. So I'm really happy about connections and always open to them. And I hope that other people are open to them as well. Our next speaker is Ashley Mears. And the topic will be Models and Bottles. Ashley is a professor at Boston University, and she's also the author of the book, entitled, Very Important People, Status and Beauty in the Global Party Circuit. I'm a sociology professor, and I followed an unusual path into academia. Like a lot of young girls, modeling was my teenage dream, much like boys' dream of becoming professional athletes. When I was in Atlanta, where I grew up, I started modeling as a teenager, which meant shooting catalogs for the local department store. And I noticed even then how hard it was to fit into extremely narrow standards of beauty. Most of the models were white. All of them were very thin and quite young. And I noticed there was a very high turnover. Because of the quest for novelty, fashion is by definition change, and models have short careers, especially women, because their perceived value on the market is tied to youth. So much so that when I turned 19, my agency advised me to actually lie about my age when I went to New York to claim an audition that I was 18. So that's when I thought, maybe this isn't a good career path in the long term. So I went to graduate school to study sociology in New York because I wanted to understand the market dynamics of the fashion world. 
And in my first year of graduate study, I got scouted to join another model agency. And this time I signed up with the goal of being an analyst to keep track of how the money worked. So I interviewed models, agents, and clients just to understand the market from their perspectives. I also was sent out on modeling assignments. From day one, the agents in New York advised me to lie about my age. By now I was 23, and they told me to say that I was 18. In sociological terms, people that study labor would see modeling as a bad job. That's actually what we would call it. This is a, a bad job. It's structurally unstable. There's high turnover. There's high risk. But indeed, there's also high rewards. The cultural imaginary of fashion models is that they're very successful, that it's very glamorous, that they're very well paid. But what I found in my first book, Pricing Beauty, is that actually models, for the most part, are pretty poorly compensated. But they do get quite a lot of perks, such as the treatment of being a VIP in bottle service nightclubs. And this brings me to my second book, Very Important People. So when I was researching the modeling industry back in New York around 2006, I met several men that work in nightclubs called promoters. Their job is to promote the night for a club. They get paid by nightclubs anywhere between $200 to $1,000 a night to bring the right crowd. Now, for the highest end of nightlife in New York, these kinds of clubs offer what's called bottle service. Bottle service is when expensive bottles are brought to someone's table at prices that are starting at a markup of 1,000% on up. Promoters are expected to bring the right crowd. And in bottle service nightclubs, the right crowd is the crowd of very important people, which boils down to two things. It's men with money who are paying for the expensive bottles of alcohol. And it's women who are or look like fashion models. They are ubiquitously called girls, regardless of their age. So I followed promoters beginning in 2011 for 18 months. I interviewed 44 of them. And what I found is that while promoters can make a pretty good living and the clubs make quite a big profit in the nightlife industry, the huge multi-billion dollar industry, the girls don't get paid. They add huge value to a space. So this raises a very interesting question. Why do people work for free? There's four different reasons to explain why the girls would participate in this structurally unfair arrangement. First, it's the free meal, because as I had learned earlier, most models don't get paid very much. So being able to go out and afford an expensive meal in a luxury restaurant is something most of them can't access. Two, they have strong relationships with promoters who spend a lot of time cultivating relationships with girls and building friendships. Three, promoters open up access to this exclusive world, which is also connected to a fourth kind of ego stroke of belonging to the elite. By definition, these are very exclusive spaces. Even though promoters are gaining financially and the girls are not, promoters are opening up an opportunity for them to afford a lifestyle that they otherwise can't. Why do young, beautiful women want to be on display? I think that there traditionally has been a split along gender of the importance of beauty, the importance of looks, capturing attention has been something that women have been encouraged to do even at a young age. Girls have the princess fantasy and that involves a very certain body, a very certain kind of decorative role, whereas boys are socialized early on to be more active, to be the agents, to be the ones that are looking and not the ones that are looked at. The male heterosexual gaze in which men are the ones that look and women are the ones who decorate themselves to be looked at. Terry Williams 
a sociology professor at the New School, spoke on this podcast about his book, La Boogie Woogie, an after-hours cocaine club where men and women go to do drugs. There was a lot of sexual energy there and hooking up at that club. And what surprised me about your book on bottle service was that drugs were discouraged by the promoters and that sex was uncommon between the beautiful women who entertain these elite men. What's going on? Why is the boogie-woogie different from the bottle service clubs? Nightlife has all kinds of different niches and specific clubs with specific crowds on specific nights as well. Promoters that have been so successful is because they're sober and they take this very seriously as a business. It's not to say that drugs aren't in the clubs. I mean, it's a club. <laughs> like there's, there's lots of loud music and people are taking MDMA and cocaine, but it's not the main point, the hookups. Yes, of course, it's a nightclub. There's a sexual aspect to it, and that kind of energy is arguably one of the reasons that nightlife exists. The possibility of sexual chance and flirtation and innuendo and all of that is very much there. People hook up, they kiss, they dance close, they touch. There's a lot of touching, actually, of people who don't know each other very well. The question about is there a lot of hooking up and people going home, particularly in this match between beautiful women and the rich men, who are ostensibly paying for the company of beautiful women, not directly, they pay for it with the price inflated bottles of champagne that they're buying. They're buying the experience of a luxurious setting. And they're also buying the feeling of being high status. Clubs are using beautiful women's bodies in order to help stroke a man's ego. So he can look around and say he partied in the company of Victoria's Secret's models. Whether or not he goes home with them, it's enough that they are present. That's the underlying purposes of this kind of VIP space. In your Models and Bottles book, you see that the girls are sometimes compared to beautiful furniture. Why is that? <laughs> right. Yeah, sorry. I'm laughing at furniture women. Of course, it's not funny, but just the expression. When I interviewed this person who books the fashion shows for Prada, he was explaining to me how he chooses the models because he sees hundreds of them and he has to choose, you know, 10 for the show. And he was explaining it. How can one account for taste? He said, how did I choose this sofa that we're sitting on? I don't know. For me, it ticks the box. It's just taste. And I remember thinking like, oh, he just compared women to the sofa. But in that context, these are kind of ways that people are speaking about young women as commodities, as objects. So I don't think that it's the sex that girls are offering. It's sexiness. It's a feeling that one gets when one is surrounded by that visual impact of a lot of really beautiful women. In your book, you mentioned that the businessmen barely talk with the beautiful girls at the club and that the girls break the ice and help everyone get comfortable in the male world of business. What's going on here? When I interviewed the wealthy men who are paying in these clubs, I asked them if the women that they met out in clubs, these girls that were so valuable, if this was the pool of romantic partners, that they were looking for a girlfriend or a future wife among these women. And their answer was a very stern no. They would say models are great decoration, right? Like furniture, but this is not the pool of future marriage material. You explained that some women use their modeling experience to elevate their social class position. You refer to French sociologist Pierre Bourdieu that there are traditional social classes and that beautiful women can sometimes jump to a higher social class because of their beauty. I know that high-status men feel pressure not to bring younger women into their social circles, and they will face 
stiff resistance from their friends' wives, for sure. What's going on? Pierre Bourdieu has observed that one way that elites and the upper classes maintain power amongst themselves is by carefully controlling marriage. People who are upper class tend to partner with similarly high-status partners. So rich men will marry women who come from rich families or at least that have the same kind of educational credentials. The anomaly is Melania Knobs and Donald Trump. And they met at a party that was organized by somebody who hangs out very much in this club world. So much for Cinderella. What makes a good promoter? They're really good at making girls feel comfortable, feel valuable, and making girls want to come out and work for free. In your book, you describe a promoter who hangs out at the corner of Grand and West Broadway in the village in his car. And he sees an attractive girl walking down the street. He jumps out, leaves his car running and chats her up, gets her phone number and encourages her to join him later that night at the bottle service party. Are the promoters constantly on the lookout for beautiful women? So there's different strategies to do that, but that's a kind of key thing about their job. One of them told me there can be no night without the day. So what they're doing during the day is identifying girls, recruiting them, building a relationship with them, and then trying to mobilize them to come out. And so street scouting, this scene that you just described, that's one way to do it. I'm in the business world, but I don't know anyone who's doing any business in these clubs. Who are these people? The men are quite a mix. They come from a range of backgrounds. Some of them are occasional participants in this scene. They drop in once a year or twice a year. Some of them are regulars. They're not spending in huge sums. They might go out with a couple of friends and share the bill. People from Wall Street, from finance, from tech, the elite, they're hypermobile, they're global, they're circulating, their money comes from all different sources, old money, new money, different industries, and so on. One thing that most of these rich men had in common is relative youth. So they're not as young as the girls, but it would be men who are not typically much older than their 50s, or not 60s. You could certainly see a silver fox in the crowd, and that wouldn't be unusual like it would be to see a 60-year-old woman in this space would be very unusual. Um, So it's more young money or men who are starting out and making a lot of money, but working rich, people who didn't inherit. Even within a nightclub, it's not all men who have lots of money. If you think about how big a nightclub is, 500 person capacity, they have to get filled somehow. The door person will make these distinctions of people who can come in because they can pay for the table. And those are people who have money and as evidence that they're going to lay down their credit card and pay for renting a table. And then women who are beautiful and they get in for free. But then there's lots of other people that are valuable to the club because they keep the place from looking empty. And so these are people that are sometimes called fillers. They might not have thousands of dollars to spend on a night, but they could pay for $50 for their drinks at the bar and they'll fill the space and they look well-dressed enough that the club values those people as well. You describe some women as good civilians. What does that mean? And how do they help the club? So good civilian was my role in this space. A good civilian is somebody who is not a model because the fashion modeling industry has very exacting and very narrow standards of beauty, of height and thinness and youth. But a good civilian is somebody who is maybe off a little bit in one or more of those categories. But when the lights are low, you know, she will still look close enough to a model, so pretty enough but not quite a model. And so when I was doing this field work, I was already 31, which is way past retirement age. 
for fashion models. But the reason that they tolerated me was because I was a good civilian. That was still valuable. If I was a little bit shorter or a little bit older, like I am now, or a bit heavier, I would not have been able to get the access that I did. In your book, Pricing Beauty About Models, you explain that the desired fashion look changes constantly and that even booking agents are surprised at what is hot. What has changed recently that has surprised you about model preferences? So that distinction between the editorial market and the commercial market, I think you see this in a lot of art fields where the editorial fashion doesn't appeal to a mass market. It's really communicating taste to a rarefied audience that has been trained. So like other fashion insiders or photographers and designers can see beauty in something that your average consumer in middle America, I'm just going to use my mom as an example, that my mom just wouldn't get because she's not in high fashion. She doesn't read the magazine. She doesn't look at all of the Instagram. I'm always fascinated to see these different ways of assessing the value of any cultural good, you know, a work of art or beauty and so on. I will say your question was about the content of the look and how are those looks at the editorial end changing. I think that they've opened up enormously, and that's because the visibility of people and the assertion of people to proclaim loudly and in public and to be heard that they have a right to be visible in the beauty industry, that has been transformed with social media. There have been very large women who are like a size 20 who have become top models because the platform of Instagram has allowed them to contest these hegemonic standards of the fashion modeling industry. I see a lot more black models in magazines and TV advertising these days. What's going on? The distinction between editorial and commercial modeling is actually really important here. So in the commercial end of the market, where catalogs are being marketed to everyday middle American consumers, those kinds of bodies tend to be much more ethnically, racially diverse. You'll see just a lot more black bodies in the commercial end of the market. You'll see more full-figured, large-size, plus-size bodies in like commercial catalogs than you would see on a high-end catwalk. So like a commercial catalog that I worked for, for instance, they were conscientious that they needed to have a black woman, an Asian woman, a redhead, and a blonde. Right? Like They need to have like everybody that will look at their ad and say, this appeals to me. It's still aspirational. At the editorial end of the market, and because the editorial fashion production is insiders speaking the language of high-end fashion to one another, they're not beholden to what their consumers want necessarily. They're just beholden to their own sense of taste and what they think is fashionable. And in my interviews, I found interviewing people that are booking the shows for the catwalks and so on, their default aesthetic was a thin, young, white woman, and everything else outside of that was noticeably different. And the editorial under the market, when they're casting the shows for a fashion show, they would take pains to try to get at least one black model that could be on the catwalk because they want to avoid the accusation of white supremacy or of a racist vision of beauty. We have to get one, but there's only one that's really good this season. Everybody's getting that one good black model. Thanks to Nina Scalera and Ashley Mears for joining us today. If you missed last week's show, check it out. 
Our topic was the lack of a red wave in the midterm U.S. congressional House elections. Our speaker was Henry Olson, who is the author of the working-class Republican, Ronald Reagan and the Return of the Blue-Collar Conservatism. Henry explained why there was no red wave in an election despite the Republicans winning the national popular vote by a substantial margin of 3% or 3.2 million votes. Republicans improved their voting share in very blue urban districts as well as very red rural districts, which didn't help those Republicans win any additional seats. I also want to give you a heads up about next week's podcast. We'll have two speakers— Claudia Gould is the director of the Jewish Museum, and I've asked her to talk about the Jewish Museum's current show that I loved about art in New York City from 1962 to 1964. We will also hear from art advisor Wendy Cromwell, who will tell us what she observed at the recent Miami Basel show. You can find our previous episodes and transcripts on our website, whathappensnextin6minutes.com. Please encourage your friends to join the What Happens Next community by signing up for our free weekly updates about upcoming podcasts. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I would like to thank our audience for your continued engagement with these important issues. Goodbye.